0: Welcome to Word of Truth. This is Doug Presley. its five thirty 5-31-2023. And we're here to uh, to have Bible study, and we're going to have a word of prayer, and we'll get right to it. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Father, for this time we've had, or we have this evening, and we pray for wisdom as we open your word. We thank you for life, health, and strength. Every day we're here, we acknowledge that you have allowed us to be here by your grace. So we thank you. And so, Father, uh, as you know, uh, I have traveled because we want to funeralize Kenneth Haddon. And so we're going to pray for all of the Haddon family. We pray for uh, those who are here, his immediate family and are grieving. We pray for his brothers and sisters who are, will be traveling very soon. We pray for traveling mercies, and not only them, but all who intend to travel for this event. And um, we just lift the whole family up in prayer, asking for your comfort and your care and your consolation during this difficult time. So we pray for each person that is associated with Word is Truth. and Father, you know the hearts of uh, every person. In particular, I w- would also like to call out uh, Pastor Mike and his family. And we pray for his health. Uh, you know his the concerns that he has. Father, we pray that you would comfort his heart, give him peace. Uh, so whatever is happening, we pray for that peace and not only him but his entire household we pray for fred and brenda and everybody associated with word is truth and father there's upcoming things happening in all of our lives even if we haven't mentioned it publicly we ask as we lift up word is truth that each of us would be able to derive from the word the comfort and the Understanding and the spirit of truth that will console our hearts as we focus our attention on your word tonight. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, <clears throat> so we're gonna we're gonna jump right into uh, where we are. However, there are some things uh, that we did not finish last week. Uh, in the, verse 8 so let's look at those things really quickly we're going to get right to it uh, I'm going to read 11 and then we'll point 11 12 and 13 let's just get to it so it's then serve and, and serving is a gift and it's serving the body of Christ I'm, And uh, last week we talked about marrying the gift whatever God gives you in terms of the gift marrying that to the purpose of the gift, what, how it supports the bodily functions and the Father's eternal purpose. Right? We're, we're here, these gifts are for us, not for Israel. So if it's, uh, <clears throat> and do it diligently, that means provide unprecedented direction to the body of Christ. This is for leaders, that is. If you lead, make sure you provide that. Uh, information that dispensationally correct information to the body of Christ. Uh, do it cheerfully, treating the body of Christ with humility and respect and mercy. And then, uh, so that whole thing, we, we tried to summarize some of the gifts that were mentioned there in Romans 12. Point number 12, <clears throat> This is where we did not cover in particular, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. So I said, the specialized information you have received, uh, with which was hidden but now revealed. So we talk about, I gave you all the gifts, although we did cover prophecy, we just wanted to make sure you relate prophecy to the spiritual gift given to some in the body in order to allow them to elucidate the... Uh, the new information right, that we have from uh, the Spirit of Truth. That, I mean, just think about it. If God is going to give prophecy, uh, He is going to give information that has not been revealed, <clears throat> and that is this is the point of uh, First Corinthians. I'll read two seven. Let me read it. First Corinthians chapter two. And verse 7, no, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God has destined for our glory before time began. When I think about that, this is the information that pertains to us. This is the wisdom, if you go to verse 7, that was destined for our glory before time began. So if God is giving prophecy, he's giving prophecy about the new information. And if we miss that point, then Ephesians three two through four. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace, which was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. And reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the people of other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Now, that sounds like a mouthful. But what (laughs) what I'm trying to say there, or what I think God is trying to say, is the information contained in the mystery is what our age is all about. Paul is trying to let us know it was not revealed prior to Pentecost or where Jesus' introduction of the Spirit was. So that information is what we're about. That information defines us. It allows the purpose of God to be known by us and so that we can begin to walk according to that purpose, whatever gifting there is, whatever uh, the Spirit helps us and whatever help you can imagine, is for this dispensation. God didn't just give prophecy so that we could go back to Israel and rehearse uh, what Israel did and what was their calling. If he wanted, he could have just augmented whatever we were in terms of Israel, but he didn't do that. He completely hid this information from Israel. So the Old Testament scriptures don't contain the new calling that we have. Now, I didn't say that. I just read it, right? So it was not made known to the people in other generations as it has been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So that's why I brought out point 13, and I tried to challenge you all with this thought. How do you understand the 400 years of silence from Matthew to Malachi? Silence meaning no prophecy or written or canonized scripture in this period. So think about it. How come in this 400-year period there was no prophecy or canonized scripture given by God? No prophets came forward and cried against Israel or said, you know, if you have to ask that question, why? Why is that 400-year silence? 400 years is a long time. (laughs) It would take us back to the Reformation period if we took 400 years off of our date. And it's a long time if we're thinking about God is silent. And the reason that is logical that God is silent is because it sounds silly, I know. It is because he didn't have anything else to say. He had completed his revelation to Israel. What else did he need to say? Now obviously when Christ came along and he started declaring himself as the Messiah and so forth and the New Testament started, of course there needed to be more information uh, and God certainly supplied that information through prophets and it we do also have it in writing. So prophecy is obviously to... Uh, give us the will of God. So when we talk about the New Testament prophets, as Paul is saying, the apostles and prophets who have laid groundwork for this New Testament information, it, it is apparently going to come to an end. It, there will be some point where God has completed giving us this information as well. We can expect then, once he completes his revelation to the church to this new age that he would be silent again now not silent in the sense that he doesn't have anything else to say but whatever he has to say is part of the illumination that we will receive from the New Testament epistles the Holy Spirit it says will lead and guide us to all truth. into all truth I would expect that in every generation, the Holy Spirit is busy doing that. The Holy Spirit is not uh, ordaining prophets or giving the gift of prophecy so that uh, each generation can benefit from prophets. It's interesting, I came from Seventh-day Adventist Church and part of what that church thought was uh, a matter of pride was the fact that they had a prophet that they called, uh, that had the gift of prophecy, and her name was Ellen G. White. And a lot of Adventists don't talk much about that, but this is part of the foundation and the core of Adventist theology. Ellen G. White was, they said, was a prophet. And, of course, I believe, that I'm not just saying they said, I thought, as, as an Adventist, I thought that she was too and you know she gave you know direction for obviously toward the Seventh Day Adventist Church you know it was in that direction but uh, I no longer am Adventist and I have seen my eyes have been opened to see that no she is not a prophet and what we have in Scripture is sufficient and we have on top of that God the Holy Spirit illuminating that which is in Scripture so we don't need it is complete. God does not need to speak anymore. Uh, and I, and why I say this 400 years of silence from Malachi to Matthew is because it demonstrates that God gave the revelation to to Israel. At some point, it was complete. So he didn't give us this new revelation to talk about Israel because it stands written what Israel's call was who they are, what they were supposed to do or be in the world, what their true purpose was, all of that is contained in the Old Testament scriptures. So you gotta expect that if God has this new revelation, certainly not about Israel, it's about the church. As we already said, he hid it from them. Now people would like to ignore that information that's in the New Testament, that it was hidden, it was a mystery, Paul uses that term to to illustrate that the way of life we have is not was not made known in Israel. We cannot go back to Israel to establish precedent for our lives in the church. We cannot. Israel has no clue, no understanding about who we are in Christ. This new creation was never before seen. So when we talk about prophecy in uh, 1 Corinthians 13:8. Whether there be prophecy, it shall cease. Whether there be tongues, it shall... Yeah. The, well, prophecy ceasing doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit's going to stop illuminating us so that we can preach the gospel or that we can preach this New Age information. It means that there will be no further information at some point in time. They're going to stop. God's going to stop. When's it going to stop? When the completed canon of Scripture Comes, as we already noted last week, tongues have come to an end. There are no one has spoken in tongues since A.D. seventy, because the Holy Spirit has is the only one who can give uh, somebody the gift of tongues. And uh, what tongues were warning about ended in A.D. seven. I asked everyone if they would read the tongues paper. It is on the website, and if you haven't read it. Please take some time so that you can understand and orient to what is going on today. Help, help, help! I just want to help you understand and place where this movement is going with this whole people speaking in tongues. And they're not even following the uh, admonition that Paul gave them in 1 Corinthians 14. They're, they're, not, even, uh, they're not adhering to that. So even if tongues were valid, it would be, just like the Corinthians, a mess. Corinthians were abusing spiritual gifts. And that was a rebuke to them, not some way to praise them. I don't know how people have tried to turn that into, well, you see, tongues are good for today. No, Paul had to regulate the use of tongues. And he said, don't forget. Forbidden not just speaking in tongues, because tongues were still in existence when he wrote those chapters, those letters. So this is important. I mean, every gift, apostle, right? Is God given the gift of apostle anymore? Well, we could say that he gave the gift of apostle, and they are the foundation of the church. And I just want to take you to Ephesians chapter 4. Let's look at this. It's important as we see it this way. Uh, so, I'm going to read 4.11. So Christ himself gave the apostles. Now, he, when he says he gave, he's talking about, he's, he's designated certain ones to have the gift of apostle. He gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Now, if you look at all the gifts that are mentioned here, he doesn't mention tongues or these other gifts. He mentions these major gifts right we want to talk about each one briefly he gave apostles prophets evangelists and we believe pastor teachers uh, pastors and teachers are the same person pastor is the overall function and care for the church teacher is the function of what he actually does so so each of these gifts have one thing in common they uh, well there's more than one thing <laughs> but they at least have this one thing in common that I want to make this point and that, and that is that they are all communication gifts. So apostles laid the groundwork for the church and they also many of the apostles were also prophets and wrote in scripture. So uh, apostles is a leadership gift one who, is able to go out and to blaze the trail and to establish churches and all of this. Uh, apostles were the foundation of the church. We're not to create, we can't create the foundation. Ephesians 2.20 says that the church has uh, this foundation with Christ, the apostles, and prophets. Prophets brought the new revelation. All right, so, so we need apostles, prophets. Evangelists is the only... Uh, outward-facing gift. But even though they face toward unbelievers, evangelists were given, those unbelievers we expect are going to be, once they're saved, if they believe the message of the gospel, they'll be in a church. So that benefits the church. If there's nobody in the church, the pastor can't teach anybody. The apostle, they can't follow the apostles' doctrine. So, and then the pastor-teachers. So the pastor-teachers depend on all of these other communication gifts, all right? So we don't go back and look for apostles today to blaze the trail. The trail has already been blazed. We don't look for prophets to come with some new revelation that, we, whoa, this is some new new thing. No, God already laid it down and then he stopped giving uh, future prophecies. And then evangelists, they bring people into the church, all of that is needed. These are communication gifts that are needed for the pastor-teacher. What for? Verse 12. To equip his people, God's people, for works of service. So that's. So who's equipping his people for works of service? That would be the job of the pastor-teacher. It's not the job of the evangelist. His people, the evangelist is trying to make unbelievers his people. It wouldn't be the job of the apostles and prophets because those gifts are foundational gifts and the pastor teacher is using the information uh, that that was laid from the apostles and prophets to teach. So now of course, there were apostles and prophets and and at the time of writing so, uh, but now since that gift has stopped, prophecy is no longer here. God has finished with the revelation of the church according to 1 Corinthians 13 to equip his people for works of service why and what works of service well here we are again with the spiritual gifts right each of us has a spiritual gift and so in order for that spiritual gift to manifest in your life You need what Christ is saying right here. You need the benefit of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. Otherwise, you won't be able to be equipped for works of service and the body will not grow up, right? So here the body may be built up, right? So until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So we need the pastor-teacher gift so the other gifts will become aware of what information or what did God invest in them when he gave each of us a spiritual gift and they will be able to function or as it says here, works of service. And God is saying all of this is to benefit the body of Christ, not just individually. Now, I recognize individually is, you know, some if a person doesn't want to grow up in grace, uh, you have to say, you know what, I'm going. I'm going to grow up in grace. I understand you might not want to, but I want to. So we, on, on the one hand, we have to have an individual mindset where we have to get what belongs to us. I always say, it's like if you're on a plane and there's trouble, and those oxygen masks pop down from the ceiling. They always tell you, first put your mask on, and then help others. (laughs) Don't don't be helping others, and then you pass out because you don't have enough oxygen. First put your mask on, then you can help others. And in the same way, first you learn the truth. that You understand the way, uh, the Father's eternal purpose. And then once you understand, and you've learned it, your mind has been transformed, Then you go help others, right? That's the thought. You get get what belongs to you, and then you grow up, and then you can help others grow up. Hopefully that makes sense. What happens if we don't grow up? Verse 14. Well, we won't have those works of service, obviously. The body of Christ will not be built up, and uh, we won't have unity in the faith. And look, knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. We won't have all that. What will we be? What is the converse of that? Then we will no longer be infants. Here's what would happen. Infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. So this is what happens to people who don't grow up. If you want to know what they look like, if you want a a picture of what it looks like for somebody who refuses to allow the Holy Spirit to bring them into maturity, to grow them to adults. This is what it looks like. Infants, and that word is napias. That's just not a new believer. And I know this is a common thing. A lot of people will say, well, you know, I'm just still a baby. (laughs) I'm just a babe. I'm just, I I don't, I'm, I'm... And they could have been in the church 20 years, but they'll make some statement that uh, they have no knowledge. I don't know, you know, but if you've been in the church a long time and you still don't know, then there's a problem. You need to recognize that there is a problem in your spiritual maturation. You're not growing up. So, And what, what is the result of that? You'll be tossed back and forth. You won't have a foundation. Well, If we're using a nautical analogy, you won't have a rudder or an anchor. To be able to guide through the many storms that are out there in the world, blown here and there by every wind of teaching. That's what we're talking about. We're in the world and teaching is important. What you believe in your heart demonstrates how you are able to fight in the battle. This is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers and so forth the cunning and craftiness of people. People are lying in wait to deceive you. And you need to be on guard. Because it is not about, oh yeah, I have my behavior, you know, I can, that's what I can control. No, what you can't control is being ignorant of the plan of God so that you fall for anything that comes down the pike. You've got to get a foundation. How are you going to get it? From the pastor-teacher, the one who is, it's as it says here, who equips people, his people, for works of service. So that's how you get it. So, so the idea, we're going back to our notes now. I know that was last week. We're, we're, we're moving into this week. But how important are these things? How important are people trying to perpetuate You know that you know that people are trying to perpetuate temporary spiritual gifts as though this was the plan of God. When God has already spoken and the Holy Spirit is here on the inside of us as believers. And he wants to lead and guide us into all truth. But will we let him? Will we allow him to do it? So it requires humility. Back to the notes. Okay, so end of last week. So uh, Ephesians, I'm sorry not Ephesians but uh, so for this week we're in the Romans chapter 12 and verse 9. It's a few short words and maybe we'll be able to just finish this thought. love must be sincere. hate what is evil, cling to what is good. While the Spirit motivates us to exercise uh, this the, the gifts bestowed, He continues influencing us in other areas. Love is the overriding motivation that is needed to make the body work together. Contrary to popular opinion, not everyone loves God. From Adam, we don't have the love of God within ourselves. The love of God is produced in those saved by grace through the spirit of truth. Rejecting the central message of the Spirit is rejection of the Father's uh, of the Father's plan. Loving God is not a condition for salvation; however, it is necessary for mature spiritual life in Christ. So let's get to it. What is you say, Oh, this is such a short verse. We should be able to do it real quick. Well, we're gonna look at a couple thoughts here. Love must be sincere. Point A, as we discuss this next section, it is all driven by this special love. Now, obviously, we are not going to uh, divorce ourselves from the context and just start talking about love in general or human love or some kind of love that somebody else came up with. This is love contextually found in where we are in the context. How are you going to get such a love? Obviously, you don't have this love if your mind is being conformed to the pattern of this world. You don't have this love. It's not in the world. So how would you possibly get this love? you, You have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So if you think, oh, well, you know, and the world has a lot of things to say about love. The world will tell you about unconditional love. They have gravitated to that as some high ideal. But there is no such thing as unconditional love. All love has conditions. Or else it's not love. You can't just love somebody and and then say, well, whatever they do is fine. It doesn't matter. Whatever they do is fine. No. Look, salvation is a gift and all that. When it says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, there were conditions there. He didn't just say, well, I just love you all. My love is so strong. Just come in. I forgive everybody. You don't have to worry. No, he, he says there are conditions. One, he had to send his uniquely born son, his only begotten He had to send him. And he had to judge Christ on our behalf. He didn't just say, that oh, doesn't matter. He said, whatever it means, whatever you want to make it mean, and then you have to believe in Christ, right? That's a condition before you can be saved and not perish and have eternal life. you got to believe. What if you are, are you sure, Doug? are you sure as believe? Are you, are, or maybe just God will just brush over everything? No. Look at John 3:18. It says it this way: "Whoever believes in him is not condemned. but whoever does not believe stands condemned already." Because. Why? Because God didn't love them hard enough? No, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So, this unconditional love stuff is worldly. There are conditions. And God does love us, right? But even in our growing up, that's salvation. But when we grow up in Christ, He wants us to have the same love that, that he chose us in Him before the foundation. He wants us to have that love back to Him. That re- he wants us to reciprocate that love to Him. But it's about the Father's plan. So let's get to some of this thought, right? I, I, my whole thought here in this point A is not to go belabor it, but it is to say that you have to look at this according to the context. And we're not going to just come up with some uh, form of love that is not according to the context. Point B, love must be sincere. Let's look at that word sincere. It means undissembled, that is, sincere, without dissimulation. Dis-mula- uh, and that just is really about hypocrisy. Right? That's, that's what it is, unfeigned. So what is it saying? It's saying this. I gave uh, point C, weist, love. Let it be without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy or sincere. So the NIV translates this. Love must be sincere. What do they mean by sincere? They The Greek word means that you're not to have hypocrisy. Why would you have that? That means on the inside, you may have one thought but on the outside you have another that's what hypocrisy is and I think in Galatians we're studying this and we're, we may come across it because Peter remember was accused by Paul of hypocrisy and this is where we are in Galatians 2 now hypocrisy is a, a stage term right if you look at the etymology of the word it goes back to these ancient Greek plays and people went to the theater, and they had these uh, actors. Some of them were very popular, and uh, the, we have some information uh, of, of this antiquity that is down still preserved for us. So we can know that this word uh, originated in the uh, in the Greek plays. So what is what happened? What, 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 why the Greek plays? Because. The the actors did not have microphones. There was no sound system in these theaters. So a lot of times they could not make out what was going on. People sitting in the nosebleed seats, for instance. So what would they do? They would wear these large masks and they would have different ones. So if they were supposed to be happy they would put the mask on and it would have a big, you know, face and then this big smile or whatever. Or if he if he needed to portray that he was worried about something, they would have another mask and he would put that on and it would portray that he was worried. So that word came to un- be understood as playing a role, putting on a mask. And this is where we get the word hypocrisy. So people... On the inside are one thing, but on the outside they put on a mask to the world just to let people know who they are who they want to be, but not necessarily who they are. This is what the Apostle Paul accused the Apostle Peter of this hypocrisy when he ate with the, he was sitting and fellowshipping with the with the Gentiles but then when he looked over and saw some Jews coming, he was like, oh no, I don't want the Jews to these Jews who who of the circumcision group, that is what they were called, I don't want them to, to see me in this light. And so even though he knew better, he gave in to fear. And he was worried about what those people thought of him or would think of him if he was associating himself with Gentiles. Now, these are all believers now. But, man, Peter gave in. He should have stood up to them and said, No, don't you realize that... Uh, in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile. He could have told them, but no, he caved in to fear. So that was bad. And this word was brought forward by the Apostle Paul. So, so this, I'm saying all this to say that when it comes to us, when it comes to spiritual gifts, and when it comes to the motivation for us using those spiritual gifts... We must have sincere love. This love has to begin in the, in the heart, right? So, it, And then it manifests itself outward. So what is true uh, on the inside is also what is true on the outside. Point D, love must be from the heart and not something that is mimicked and only on the outside. As Matthew 23, uh, 26 says, I'll just read it. This is what was a problem with the Pharisees, of which Paul was one of them. Just remember, uh, he's writing this, but he was in this category. Twenty-three, twenty-six, he says, blind Pharisee. Hey, Paul was a Pharisee. I just want to bring that out. But notice what Jesus says about him. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also will be clean. He, he called them hypocrites in here as well. Uh, and this is the same language that we see the apostle paul using he saw the un- he understood how pharisees were behaving they on the inside they were dead they stunk well here it is look at 15 woe to you teach this is matthew 23:15. woe to you teachers of the law and pharisees you hypocrites you travel over the land and see what to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much as a child of hell as you are. So he calls he calls them hypocrites. Same word, and that hypocrisy. Paul is saying here that love must be without hypocrisy, right? without this this hypocrisy. Point E. This particular love does not come with salvation. So, and this is a fallacy here. Some people think that once they're saved, they got this euphoria, this wave of emotion. Oh, I'm so happy. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I now have invited Jesus into my heart. This is some of the things that people say, right? I've now changed my course of life. I know I was a sinner. I'm not a sinner anymore. Whatever. I don't do those sins anymore. I'm a new person, right? Well, you may be saved, and positionally, that could be true. You have been raised and seated with Christ in heavenly places. while well, you're still on earth. But all of that's true in position, but experience is something other. Now, it's it's really sad that church leaders have taught that there's, if, if, and this is how they say it, if you're saved, then you will do thus and so. If you are saved, then you won't do thus and so. And so they try to make it out that salvation is, uh, can be judged by works. But salvation, it says, is not of works. It is not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. So if that's true, you can't judge salvation whether somebody has it or not, based on their works. Now, of course, I'm not saying works don't have anything to do with it or, or that we can't look at good works and say, yeah, that was a good work. What I'm trying to say is whether a person has salvation or not doesn't depend on whatever works they have. That's important because work is not of yourselves, not by works. Therefore, by the works of the law, no flesh, no person, will be justified before God." So to be justified, to receive the righteousness of Christ, to have eternal life, all of that, there's no works involved. Now, how do you come to know the spiritual life? Well, we're going back to where we are in the context. You got to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It takes discipline. It takes understanding. If I go back to Ephesians, Chapter 4, I know this isn't in your notes, but I'm just going to read a little further. So he says, look at verse, uh, <clears throat> verse, oh gosh, we could start at 17. So I tell you this and insist on it, and this is 417. I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they give themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Now here it is, verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were what? Taught in him. In accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, verse 22. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off the old self, which is being corrupted, and with, by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. To put on the new self, created to be like God unto righteousness and holiness. So, this is to show that teaching is important. What is this teaching? It is to be transformed. By the, it is to stop being conformed to the patterns of this world, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So this particular love that we're talking about does not come without. You don't get this because you are saved. Because you believed in Christ and you are saved doesn't mean you have this love. This love is the motivation for what matures you so that you can live the adult spiritual life. It is developed through a process we're going to cut through some of these things Uh, there are five points to consider salvation is not conditioned on love right so God is saying whoever shall love me shall have eternal life there is no scripture about that it's not to say we God does not want us to love him but it is to say it is not a condition for salvation in fact there are no conditions for salvation except to believe in Christ. Now, that sounds pretty tough, some people might say, but there are no conditions. It's, look, if it's not of yourselves, not of works, not, not by keeping the law, not, not even by works done in righteousness, it's not of yourselves, then salvation has no conditions of you. All the expectations are not on us, they are on what God has done for us. So, there's only one condition, and that is to believe in Christ. As we read in John 3.18, Right? it is because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Point number two. Once saved, we must have the same humility where we looked away from ourselves to Christ, but now the object is the mind of Christ. So, Before, it was the person of Christ who was the object of salvation. Christ, is he the Messiah? Is he not? Is he the one that should come and pay for the sins, be the sacrifice for me, or is he not? Is he that one? And his miracles, signs, and wonders demonstrate that he is the one. So put your faith in that person. Put your trust in him, right? That's salvation. But now, once you're saved... The object of your faith now switches from not only the, not the person of Christ, but the mind of Christ. <clears throat> that's First Corinthians 2:16, or what we have been calling the deep things of God. So that that is important to note, right? So we, we, we're going from the point of salvation. you know, you don't have love this particular love we're talking about. You don't have it as salvation. But then, once you are saved, you need humility. The same type of humility where you looked away from yourself. You had to look away from your works, your trying, who you are, your reputation, whether you were rich or poor, or whatever, your race, whatever it was. You had to look away from all that and say, I believe in Christ. I'm an Adam. I'm I'm a sinner. There's none righteous. I'm dead. Am I tr- I'm condemned. All, right. all these I have a sin nature. We could keep going on and on. But... That's who we were, and there is nothing in our lives in Adam that could recommend us to God. Nothing. So, uh, we have we have to look away. So, point two says we have to look away from ourselves. Now, our way, uh, what is important to us, our goals and ambitions, we have to look at, to the mind of Christ. And what does that mean? We put our trust, right, our confidence. We trust in His. His way of thinking, remember He's the Lord, for our way of life. Point number three. The mind of Christ is the Father's eternal purpose. And we read that in John 16 and 15. I'll just read it. This is where He told us, I have much more to say to you, and the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth is coming. But in 15 He said, all that belongs to the Father is mine what belongs to the father right what is he talking about that belongs to the father? did the father leave him something in the world did he inherit some some land uh, you know some money in the bank? what is it? now he's talking about the father's eternal purpose. that is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you so the spirit is making known to us, The Father's eternal purpose. Because the Father gave that to Christ. It is on Christ's shoulders. So when we talk about the mind of Christ, we're talking about the Father's eternal purpose. That's one of the things to consider. And when I tell you to focus now on the mind of Christ, that's what I mean. Point four. To grow up in Christ, we must submit to the transformation process. So God has a method, a way of transforming you. And we already talked about that when we were in Ephesians chapter 4. This is how he has given these communication gifts, not only to elucidate for us this new plan that was hidden from Israel. Well, we don't need to go back. I don't need to go back to Israel to tell you what the plan of God is. But God has given us this new plan. And he, he has revealed it so that it comes down through the pastor teacher, and he's teaching this information, and that is what should equip God's people for works of service. That will allow us, the body of Christ, to be built up, become mature. Right? That's what's important. So it'll if but we, each of us, must submit to the transformation process. Now, we could co- cover this and say, oh, let's move on to the next point. But for you to submit in this area is to say that God's plan is greater than your plan. So the first thought is you may come to understand. If you have persisted to be able to come to understand, that's a decision you make, to have the discipline to say, I want to come to Bible class. I want to submit myself so that I can learn what the Father's eternal purpose is, right? That's a, a decision that you have to make. Now, of course, whether you make it or not, that decision doesn't do, doesn't hinder your salvation. You're just as saved as anybody else who did or didn't, right? So it's not about salvation. Salvation is grace. And what does it require? No conditions. You don't have to learn uh, the, what the mind of Christ is in order to be saved. So in order to grow up, though, you need... To, to learn the mind of Christ so that you are not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine in this world. So this point where you submit is optional, right? Some people will submit to the plan of God and some people will not. Some people don't want to be transformed. They want to keep their lives just the way they are. They already got their own dreams and the only time they need God is when they run aground, when they get in trouble. Or... They might be telling God, oh, thank you, something good happened to them according to their plan. He said, thank you, God, you blessed me. But that that's not the transformation process. It's a submitting of ourselves. And God is, cha- our wills are being transformed. It is God who wills, who works in you to will his good pleasure. All right, so that's Philippians 2. So that's important. That part is, is obviously it's optional, All right. People don't like me to say that because they think, oh Doug, you're promoting lawlessness or something. No, you're being able to express your will. You can't express your will in salvation because it's not of yourself. It's not, it's a gift. You didn't do anything, but now you get to tell God, hey God, I love you. I want you. So look, point number five, Love expresses our personal commitment, devotion, and surrender to the spirit of truth, allowing the Father and Christ to use us in this world. Now, (laughs) this is important to think of. Um, So when I said the Father and Christ, I'm going to John 14, and I have two verses here. I want to just bring out 14.23. It says, well, you could even go for it earlier. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. See, so there it is. Right? We, what is his teaching? The mind of Christ. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. So notice, who's going to be inside you, making their home with you? The Father and the Son. It's not just the Son. It's the Father and the Son. It's the Father was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The Father was in Christ teaching the disciples. Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip, after I've been with you all this time? Anyone who has seen, the, seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you know the Father's in me doing the works? Don't you get it, Philip? All right, so that was the thought. But so love expresses personal commitment. Commitment to what? The Mosaic Law? The Ten Commandments? No! (laughs) No! To being a good moral citizen? To being a good United States citizen? American citizen? No! It is a personal commitment and devotion to surrender to the Spirit of Truth who will lead and guide you into the Father's eternal purpose, plan. Now if you allow, if you do that, if you submit to the Father, and to Christ, they will come in and they will use your personal presence in this world, just like Christ allowed the Father to use Him. If we were in John 14, 23, look what He said. Look what He says here, twenty-four. Anyone who does not love Me, there it is. That's the, he will not obey My teaching. Right? He won't be conformed to the pattern of this. Uh, he won't be conformed or transformed by the renewing of their mind. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. And, and then 31, Jesus says, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and I do exactly what the Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. So so Jesus is saying this love, this personal commitment, it's not to any end, it's not to whatever end we want it to be, it is the devotion and commitment and loyalty to the Father's plan so it is not us who create this plan it is God the Holy Spirit who is leading and guiding us in this plan and it allows the Father in Christ to use us in this world Now, obviously if they use us we will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ that's what, what the caveat is for us, that we do get something out of this, right? Somebody says, well, I'm surrendering everything to God. I could, do, I could devote myself to the Father's plan, but I give up my life to do that. Like Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I give up my rights of living in this world. I'm giving all of that to Christ, And so what do you get as a result? You get these eternal rewards. And these are divine rewards that God is telling us that we will get as a result of this. Point number two, and we're not gonna cover all of this. Point number two is hate what is evil, cling to what is good. I wanted to at least cover a couple of these points. So we must make sure uh, wait a minute, yeah, we, we must, oh, I'm sorry, did I skip point F? Yes, I did. Let me just read that. We cannot manufacture this love, and it is in no way inherited in Adam, as we know, First Corinthians 2, 9-11, through it talks about the spirit of truth. So this, remember we talked about love, this love should be without hypocrisy. You don't have it. You have to have the discipline to be able to submit to the teaching of the Word so that you can understand what the plan is. Just because you understand the plan does not mean you love it. Loving it comes from the God, the Holy Spirit, motivating us to have that commitment, that devotion, that obedience to the Father's plan. It just because we understand it, we still have those options to say, well, I don't, even though I understand what it is, it doesn't mean I want to do it. doesn't mean I, I want to surrender my life to that. I feel like I have to live in this world, that I, that it's about me and I want to still express my desires. Good thing Christ didn't do that, right? So, but no, each of us have that option and that's why it will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. It won't, it is optional. Some people have decided, "Hey, God, um, I'm saved by grace, but I just am not going to allow you to take over my life. I'm just going—I'm not going to allow it. I'm going to live my own life, and we'll work it out when we get there. I may not receive rewards, but I'm—I'm going to be living my life. I'm not giving it over. It's optional. Think about it." And why should people be rewarded? Because those are the ones who did who who did surrender their lives to the Father's eternal purpose. So point A, we must make sure this is two A. We must make sure we follow the context. What is evil or good must be understood by how it relates to the Father's eternal purpose. Think about it. Romans eight twenty-eight, right? So People have read this. This is a good one to think about it or how to think about it. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Now, people look at this verse and they say, Man, I was riding down the street and I, I had I, all of a sudden I had a flat tire and, and I didn't have a spare. Uh, but then after I... I said, man, I'm in trouble. I don't have a spare. Have a... a person comes along with the same kind of car I have. And he says, what's wrong? I said, well, my car's got a flat and I don't have a spare. He says, I got an extra spare right here. I can give it to you. And you say, wow, God, all things work together for good. That's not what this verse is talking about. This verse is talking about the good that the Holy Spirit produces in us. He produces it through us. Remember, we're the branch. So so the good that he's talking about is the Father's eternal purpose. So every when it says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, evil and good will be defined in the light of the Father's eternal purpose. Right? That's how we have to look at it. It's not just any good, any particular purpose that we because notice it says right here those who have been called according to his purpose we have been called according to his purpose how do we know Ephesians uh, 1 4 for he chose us in him before the creation of the world holy and blameless in His sight in love he predestined us to be adopted as sons right this is our purpose Point B, if something is against that purpose, trying to conform to the world or the Mosaic Law, etc., is obviously evil. Anything that is against the eternal purpose of the Father, if you get involved in it, it's evil. It's trying to take you away from God's eternal purpose. This is not trying to lend, it doesn't contribute to God's eternal purpose if it's taking you away. Look, for instance, right? People. Uh, conform to the world Bible says love not the world and these are the things that are in the world if any man loves the world love of the father is not in him that's 1 John two fifteen through 17 so or the mosaic law right that's not the way of life for us you might say well that's innocuous it's the 10 commandments I live by the golden rule I, I don't hurt anybody uh, I, you know all those things and I think I'm serving God and I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do no you're not that's evil Right? so so unless you're allowing the Holy Spirit to lead and guide you in all truth, then you're resisting the Holy Spirit from leading you and guiding you into all truth, and that is the just the sixes and sevens we have here in the world. Point C, if something is for that purpose, right? We said if something is against that purpose, but if it's for that purpose in point C, that which promotes the plan, growing up in Christ, expressing your spiritual gift then it is therefore good, right? And Obviously, you can't do any good. So that meant the Holy Spirit is in you and he is he motivating you, influencing you to work according to God's eternal purpose. That is good, no doubt about it. So point D, why are we admonished to do this? Why would we need to be admonished? Love what is evil, hate what is... Why would we need that? Because although we have the power of God within us, our will is the gatekeeper of our lives. That's just like it says in Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but not I, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith. In the Son. He's telling you how he ordered his life. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. We, have, we make the decision whether we are going to submit ourselves to God. Last point, point E. God could force us to do what He wants us to do. He could think about it. He's more powerful than than we are. He, if He wanted us to behave a certain way, He could just go into our minds and our will and turn the screw to positive, and then say, and then you'd be doing it. You wouldn't even know He turned the screw. But God will not do that. He wants us to express our will and allow him to use our presence in this world. He's not going to just push over you and say, well, I'm taking over and I'm going to make you do what I want you. No, you have options. I'm not saying those options don't have consequences, but none of those consequences will be if you're saved, you'll be lost. That's not a consequence. Because that's that would be to say that salvation is not by grace. So for that, we will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 5.10. Each one of us will stand at the judgment seat of Christ, that we may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body. So God He doesn't force us. A, you know, interesting, the very thing that people who who what they think, they think, oh. I want to really show God that I love him. I just want to show God that I'm devoted to him. I want to keep his law. I want to do whatever he tells me to do. I'll do it, right? But when it comes to uh, allowing God to teach them, to be to transform their minds, they won't want to do that. Right? They won't submit themselves to the teaching of the word of God. They they don't understand that God has no conditions for salvation. But when it comes to the spiritual life and growing up, oh, there are conditions, all right. We have to make decisions. And the decisions have to be positive toward the Father's eternal purpose. It's not our purpose. It's His purpose. So this is the thought. We've reached a point where we're going to uh, stop and we're going to open the floor to see if there are any questions. Open, so the floor is open. We'll give it, give it, give some time for this, for some Q and A.
1: Well, I just had a thought. It wasn't really a question. I'll go right ahead, Bill. So when we think about the Christian who may have come to the stating knowledge of the deepest right, but have not grown to the point of a the mystery, they seem to go in the direction of the new Israel or staying under the Mosaic law. Things like that, which takes them further away from the truth, mm-hmm. and, and it seems like they're they're just stuck in a in a cycle of trying to uh, to perform the mosaic law. hmm.
0: hmm. Yeah, I think because yeah, they, if you're right, that's what ends up happening. They get stuck, and and usually. Uh, religion is there to sweep them right up off their feet and give them some structure in their lives. And somehow they think because religion has given them moral, uh, moral consciousness, uh, a moral accountability, uh, that somehow they now have uh, a pleased God because they are doing something moral. Maybe they weren't doing moral things prior to their salvation, but now because religion has told them, if you act a certain way, if you do this and you do that and you clean yourself up, God will be pleased with you, right? Well, <clears throat> not so. It does, God has a plan in order to grow us up. You know, it's interesting that we have um, you know, as well, at least in this country It is important, I think it's the law, that we send our children off to school. You you can homeschool as well, but they have to have school. And school is very extensive. I mean, we don't, in kindergarten, have children go to class, and then after kindergarten we say, okay, you know, you're going to kindergarten, but you got to work the rest of the day. No, we don't send them out to work, we let them... Mature. We we let them uh, let them grow up, so that by the time they're an adult, they've learned, and then they're able to go out and hopefully navigate the waters in the world. And obviously, they're still learning that they need to do, but or have. But uh, at least we got them to a point where they can begin to make decisions, hopefully. But for some reason, Christians don't think that they don't think they think it's just like magic. If you're saved, then you automatically just do what God wants you to do. You don't have to even think about it. If you're saved, it'll just be in you. This is this is unction, this feeling that you would just automatically do what God wants you to do. It's your call. Just like in salvation. If you do not believe in Christ, then the wrath of God will remain on you. And if you do not have your mind transformed, then you will be conformed. To the pattern of this world. Because that's what you already are. You will not grow up. You will not reach maturity. You will not be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. doesn't matter what religion or the world tells you. uh, How pleasing you are. How pleasant you are. doesn't matter. You will not be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. Because you're not allowed God to bring you and grow you up. You do not submit yourself to God so that he can use your presence in this world. So those are things, unfortunately, that uh, have to, hopefully people don't learn, uh, I won't say, because rewards are for those who do. right? And for those who don't, they won't be rewarded. It's, for us, as simple as that. But I think the devil is out there and is busy trying to, Uh, neutralize believers, trying to make sure believers shut their mouths when it comes to the Word of God and what God's plan is and all of that. So God had this big reveal in the mystery and how he's got this new way of life, the new creation, all of this, and Satan wants to shut the mouths of Christians and that's sad. Look, at in the first century, we had the Judaizers who wanted people to go back to the Mosaic Law. What is that to say? I mean, we reject... They're saying, we reject this new dispensation. We're not going that way. I don't care what you say, God. We Yeah, they were saved, but they were refusing to tell people that they're not under the Mosaic Law. So these are things that we have to deal with in our time. You're going to see people who are going in those same ways. And we, ha- we have to have courage. Where P- Just like Peter had fear, we have to learn from that and develop courage in this world. And yeah, we're going to stand apart from religion. Religion will not like us, just like religion did not like Christ. They put Christ on the cross, Religion killed Abel from the very beginning. So we, we have to stand, even though we're going to suffer because of religion and religious people, we have to stand. I'll pause, Bill. I don't want to take up all the time. <laughs> but go right ahead. Your thoughts? Other thoughts?
1: No, that, that, that pretty much was in. I, I, I did notice that that's the direction people go in when they don't grow up, basically. It costs to and fro, like you said, where we win the doctrine. Yes, yes,
0: yeah. Yeah, this is what can, happened.
1: Can I add that, um, you know, I'd just like to add what Bill said here. Uh, you know, with the way I see it is, is that uh, religious people is a flaw, and um, here's the bad news that would reject Any righteousness coming from you, and we're talking about saved Christians who accept the Lord Jesus Christ, they would reject their standard of righteousness because it's it's a process. The renewing and transforming of your mind is a process. And it, it just seems that that whole process, they're stuck. And there is nothing else they can do but resort to the Mosaic Law for their standard. And, and, you know, in other words, the minute you're saved, you're renewed. Right. And how could could you be renewed when you didn't have any righteousness before you were saved? And you never went through any of the renewal process. So it's a rejection of the bad news. And... (laughs) It's, a, it's certainly a rejection. They don't even know God's eternal plan or purpose or anything about the mystery. So they have to supplant the Mosaic law because they are totally ignorant about God's plan and the mystery.
0: Absolutely. And it's interesting how people talk about the kingdom. Excellent points, Fred. I just just want to say that first. But big people talk about what is the goal or our destiny in the spiritual life? They say, oh, it's the kingdom. Everything's about the kingdom or the kingdom. Well, the kingdom was revealed in the Old Testament. The kingdom is not part of the mystery. That's not our destiny. This is not the wisdom that God destined for our glory before time began. The kingdom is not about us. It's about Israel's inheritance and what God has planned for them. Now, can we participate in that? Sure, but that's not your destiny. That is not your destiny. And Romans 8 here, here's the scripture. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. We are something special. As Ed Sullivan would say, it's really big. It's a big, big show going (laughs) on. I'm probably saying that wrong. But it, it, this is beyond God what God has done in terms of uh, blessing us in this age goes, there is no chart. It goes off whatever charts we had in terms of human uh, blessing. And blessing is not just, wow, we were so so blessed. It is about the responsibility that God has given each of us. We're not just saying blessing. Oh, man, aren't we so happy? No, we have been raised higher than all the principalities and powers and every title that can be named in this age and any future age. and, And we are part of who Christ is. And this person, Jesus Christ and his body will rule all things. So anyway, it is to say people, I don't know why people would not want to talk about such things, But I know somebody who doesn't want people to talk about such things, and that would obviously be Satan. He is busy trying to blind the minds of them who don't believe so that they cannot see. This is literally the thought of it in 2 Corinthians 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel. Listen, that displays the glory of Christ. Who is the image of God? For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ and Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light to shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So this, <clears throat> we have something very special. I would want to talk about this only, although to be rounded and complete, we will make sure that whatever subject touches on these things that enhances it, we will also bring forward. You can't just, God has given us such obvious blessed, blessings, unsearchable riches. And, of course, people don't have the proper foundation to understand it, the bad news, etc. So, therefore, they put more, they look at themselves more highly than they ought. So, um, other thoughts before, you know, we're closing in on our time? Closing thoughts.
1: I just have one. Um, Just a thought, you know, so... I know it's not written, but, um, you talk about the, the one years so, of uh, thousands Malachi and Matthew. Yes. It was the, well, I'm asking is, is this just the plan that God had bringing his son into the world. So therefore there was no, it was nothing to be, you know, um, looked upon because Christ, when he came into the world, he came to Israel.
0: So, so you, you're you saying that the, the reason for the silence is because God was going to bring his son?
1: In a way, yeah. Some, yeah. No. And he wanted, he wanted, he wanted Israel to be focused only on, on, on Christ.
0: Well... Um, one thing, when I say there's silence for 400 years, right? Well, for 400 years, God did not need to tell Israel anything. Why? Because he had already told Israel everything he needed to tell them. So he didn't have to come back and, at 300 B.C. or 200 B.C. or 100 B.C. to tell them or prophesy. And things were going on during then. I'm not saying there was nothing going on. God knew he was going to bring his son, but he didn't give more revelation because he had already completed the old testament canon he had, it was done he didn't need to write any more to israel and yes the first thing that comes about is christ so yes christ yeah. christ did come about
1: yeah but but also during that during that time there was such a possibility that he had to send a forerunner to get israel ready
0: absolutely so he sent a person uh in the well, which was prophesied 700 years prior christ he talks about uh, the voice of one crying in the wilderness make the path straight for the way of our lord and that was john the baptist who came preaching in the power as the same type of prophet elijah was and so uh spirit and power of elijah so so it, yeah that was prophesied but not in that 400 year period God had already told uh, that Christ was coming. He had already told that there would be a forerunner in the person of John the Baptist. And we saw that fulfilled in the Gospels, that John the Baptist was uh, prophesied back in Isaiah, that he did uh, come as a forerunner of Christ. Christ said there was no greater man born of woman than that of John the Baptist. He was a great man. He did his job perfectly. And even though Israel rejected Christ, it says he came to his own, but his own did not receive him, still John the Baptist did an exemplary job. And Christ commended him for it. So we have to note that. We got to quit. It's our time, but I appreciate that. I will do my best to leave a little more time next week. <laughs> I'm sorry. But we're going to have to quit. Let's keep our... Uh, just to note, we we will be... Uh, funeralizing uh, Kenneth Haddon this week um, uh, Saturday so asking for your prayers for the Haddon family also asking prayers for Pastor Mike and uh, lifting up asking the Lord to lift up whatever is on your heart let's bow our heads thank you Father uh, for this time you've given us this evening we pray for as we look at these scriptures that you will connect the dots for us by the spirit of truth. That We will see the wisdom here, uh, the spiritual common sense that is, is shown in these verses that we have been looking through. Thank you for those who have joined us. We pray that each of us, each family represented here, that you would give them exactly what they need in terms of challenging them to grow up so that they can express their spiritual gifts, taking their place in this battle that we have on earth. We thank you for this, uh, the words that you have given us and, and, and preserved, and we pray that we will continue next week in this same chapter to continue our journey. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.